Welcome to The Wrap Up, our podcast that gives you an insider's look at the top stories in Hollywood. I'm your host, Sharon Waxman, the founder and editor-in-chief of The Wrap. I'd like to welcome my co-host this week, The Wrap's assistant managing editor, Adam Chitwood. Hey, Adam. I got the call back. I didn't you got the call, the but that's time. a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to be back uh, for my second time. Here's hoping I don't mess it up this time. Uh, but we have a very packed show today. Uh, we'll be talking Oscar nominations yeah. with the Rap Awards editor, Steve Pond. We've also got special guest, uh, UC Riverside Associate Professor, Dr. Courtney Baker. Uh, and we'll have a fascinating interview with the cast of the Sundance documentary, The Janes. Uh, it's a film about the women who began an underground abortion network in the early 1970s. And then, of course, uh, as always, we have Wax On, Wax Off. Absolutely, Adam. Uh, so we have a very busy news week. As you say, let's get into the big headlines. What a week. Right. So let's kick off with uh, first things first. I'm pretty sure the only the biggest headline of the week, uh, and that's the resignation of Jeff Zucker from CNN. Uh, last Wednesday, CNN staff learned of Zucker's resignation, uh, which came out of nowhere. Uh, it came via email. And let me just read his statement uh, to start us off. He wrote, as part of the investigation into Chris Cuomo's tenure at CNN, I was asked about a consensual relationship with my closest colleague. Zucker then went on to say he acknowledged the relationship, knew he was supposed to let management know, but he didn't. Uh, he said, I was wrong. As a result, I am resigning today. There was no week there was no i'm going to stay for a few months he was out he was just out so after that bombshell fell which sort of uh had a lot of repercussions in the media world we quickly learned that zucker's relationship was with or is still with his subordinate the the chief marketing and communications officer at cnn allison gallus to who i've known for many years she uh interestingly is staying at the company zucker was out right away don't let the door hit you on your way out uh warner media ceo jason kylar announced a trio of cnn leaders so who are sort of the the next level down who will serve as co-heads in the interim um, you know, not everybody was sad to see Zucker go. I published a story in which we had texts from former staffers on a very uh, incendiary thread that, uh, you know, slammed Zucker for, for ruining the network, for, for things like um, make, skewing things much more to uh, opinion-oriented hosts like Chris Cuomo and Don Lemon, um, for not finding new talent, for, for not creating new products. but And mainly, I think the biggest sore point is his role in elevating Donald Trump to um, the prime sort of space that he had during the, mainly during the campaign uh, for the, the first election. Uh, and, you know, Tr Zucker used to run uh, Trump's campaign rallies end to end, which were, you know, ratings bonanza, but it also helped really elevate Trump, the candidate. And of course, uh, many other people feel the opposite, which is that Zucker was a great leader, that Zucker was somebody who really was a cheerleader for, for the staff and who also defended the staff from the very relentless attacks by Trump once Trump became, became president. Right. And since our original reporting, uh, you know, there have been internal meetings with Kylar where he's getting even more pushback from CNN staffers. Um, so what's yep. going on here? Is this as Game of Thronesy as it seems? Yeah, it is. Well, they, so the, the flip side of what you're talking about is that Jason Kylar has gone to do town halls with the staff in D.C. and in New York. And they're saying, what the hell? Like this guy was just 
summarily executed by firing squad in front of the entire building after he was the guy who championed us. So while I reported on the people who were unhappy, there were plenty of people who were unhappy at Jason Kylar, not only at um, the fact that Jeff Zucker was made to resign over a consensual affair, which is one thing, but secondly, that the way it was done is very summary quickly get like, get your shit and get out of the building kind of mode, who was a guy who really, uh, they regarded as, as their champion. Now it should be pointed out that CNN remains third in the ratings. It was third in the ratings when Jeff Zucker came in nine years ago. But I think there is something to talk about in terms of the um, sort of fear and loathing that was going on behind the scenes. We wrote a piece that was um, echoed in other coverage that came out. We wrote it sort of immediately that day, which is that Chris Cuomo was the kind of behind the scenes mover. It is, it wasn't it just a normal, oh, this guy had an affair and he got fired. There was a lot of machinations behind the scenes. Chris Cuomo, who was um, made to resign from the network because it was found that he was advising his brother, Andrew Cuomo, very actively uh, who, of course, was under sexual harassment um, or sexual misconduct allegations, while Chris Cuomo was a primetime anchor. And it was discovered that after Jeff Zucker sort of looked into it and said, okay, well, it, it's okay, Chris, that actually Chris Cuomo's involvement in his brother's defense was a lot more than he had thought. And there's also some question of what uh, actually Jeff Zucker knew, when did he know it? But the point is when he fired Chris Cuomo, he refused to pay him the severance. So some people who might say like, man, you've got a liability going on, you're having an affair with a subordinate. Um, it's consensual, all of that, it's an open secret, but you've got a lawsuit going on or preparations for a lawsuit by a very high profile talent with a very aggressive lawyer. There was no love lost between him and Jason Kylar either. So not a big surprise that Kylar, as soon as he found out about this affair said, oh, you're breaching corporate policy. We've got a merger with Discovery happening. Bye-bye. So it, it's, it got really messy. It's it's very messy and, you know. Right. And Kylar is, is presumably on the way out as well with this Discovery merger. So it felt uh, extra violent as, as kind of, a, you know, getting Zucker out of there on his way out the door. Yeah, exactly. There's a little bit of um, Julius Caesar... Uh, like machinations going on there. Uh, Kylar has, you know, Kylar is is about to lose his job really anyway. And it's a fair question as to why there was this swift and this extreme uh, a move by him. And there is now fallout there because he's now had to have two different rounds of town hall meetings from staffers in CNN who have not been shy about like, hey, what is what what went on? And I think there was a leak, actually an audio leak of Jake Tapper, who leads the coverage in Washington, saying, did we let the bad guy win here, which is to say Chris Cuomo uh, or his lawyer who um, maneuver things in such a way as Jeff Zucker lost his job. So it's it's really actually a very bad look for the network. And of course, Fox has been going to town on this. So right. anyway. One last question for you before we move on. Uh, how soon before HBO does the original movie based on this? And who plays <laughs> Jeff Zucker? I don't know if they're going to be doing that. <laughs> Paging Adam McKay. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
feels like a question. Yeah. Uh, So last week, our team exclusively broke the story uh, that longtime Golden Globes voter Hussam Sam Assi, a Palestinian journalist for the BBC Arabic service, and he was a longtime member of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, Mm -hmm. had been accused of sexual misconduct by three women, including a former assistant who said he once kissed her on the lips without her consent. Um, He denied the allegations. He called them baseless. Uh, He said, we have ample evidence to prove them false. But then earlier this week, we learned that the HFPA took action and and Sam is being placed on probation with the organization. Uh, Sharon, what's happened since then? What's mostly happened is that Sam Aussie has made um, pretty vile allegations against me, who was one of the byline people on the story, which is uh, really too bad. He's seems to think that um, the best defense is a good offense, but he hasn't addressed the actual allegations against him. He's also attacked one of the women who has um, accused him of sexual misconduct. And by the way, all three women are on the record. It's uh, one woman who was a member of the organization of HFPA who resigned in protest over what she sees as the corruption in the organization. It's another woman who was his assistant for six months and she's on the record. And it's a third woman who was trying to get Sam Aussie to sponsor her to become a member. And she became so disillusioned by her experience that she left journalism altogether which is a really sad outcome. She's a Ukrainian journalist, and she was very brave in coming forward because she has no reason to do so except to protect other women who might, she, she, she's worried, um, be subject to sexual misconduct if no action is taken. So, yeah, I, I don't mind that um, Sam Ossie has decided to attack us. I think that's fine. He also wrote threatening letters, legal letters to the women before we published the story. He has been placed on probation. He has, um, you know, he has, again, he keeps saying these allegations aren't true and he keeps declining to address them specifically, except to say that they're not true. Um, What's interesting here to me is this is obviously coming at a time when the HFPA has promised to clean up its act, to clean up its house, to, to have a code of conduct, which it did not always have a proper code of conduct. So I'll just point out that Um, I wrote a story in 2013 about this same member, about two women who complained about what they they considered to be sexual harassment at the time. They went to the HFPA administration, did not get satisfaction, so then they came to me, and we published a story. And at the time, the HFPA did nothing, and Sam Ossie said the same thing. He said, I'm a victim, I'm being uh, singled out because I'm an, either because I'm a man or because I'm from the Middle East or because I'm an Arab or because people here don't like me, uh, which may be true. I have no idea if people there like him or don't. Um, but the fact that at the time, you know, this is always what we see in these cases of sexual misconduct, is that it's very common that something happens, um, it gets reported, uh, or doesn't get reported, and then the person who's accused of this misconduct doesn't, you know, more cases come up in the subsequent years. So then it was 2013. These cases are 2015, 2016, 2017. And I, I'm glad to see at least the HFPA is taking it seriously because these women, you know, it takes courage to come forward and put your name on something. It's embarrassing. It isn't fun. You open yourself up to attacks and you never know what's going to happen when you do that. And really what's the upside for them? There isn't much. So uh, we'll see what happens. We, we see what happens. And the other thing I should tell you is that we have a, a couple of other pieces in the works about the HFPA. We're coming up on a year since the HFPA committed 
to make a lot of reforms after the LA Times wrote a deep investigative piece about uh, self-dealing and the lack of diversity. So we're going to have we're going to revisit that topic uh, on the wrap. Uh, keep keep a keep, hold, you know hold that thought. Okay, so moving on, the media is making headlines uh, with uh, Barry Diller's IAC Dash company, which decided to end the print publication of six of the titles it acquired last year when it bought Meredith Corp, including really major titles, Entertainment Weekly, which was known as the Showbiz Bible, In Style, Eating Well, Health, Parents, and People in us in Spanish. About 200 people, mostly journalists, are expected to lose their jobs. Some of that has already happened. And of course, it is the end of an era in some sense because of what Entertainment Weekly meant on the cultural landscape. Um, so, but it's also part of the transformation and the move to digital that, of course, we've been experiencing now for a couple of decades. Right. And and joining us to talk about this news is The Wrap's uh, editor-at-large, Ben Svetke, who is a veteran of Entertainment Weekly and worked uh, at the magazine. Ben, how's I it going? I think he was there for 22 years, Ben. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Um, yeah, it's an extremely sad day um, for me and for a lot of people who've passed through EW over the decades. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, these days, the, the magazine doesn't have much of a footprint, but Back in the day, it was the leader of the cultural conversation in not just in Hollywood, but in New York and in all the flyover states in between. It was a huge, huge deal with millions of subscribers. So well, we'll talk about what that was like. I mean, I was an avid reader of your work at the time. It's partly why I was so excited to have you come to the wrap because I just think, you know, you could really uh, show off your writing chops at a place like Entertainment Weekly. It appreciated great writing. And, um, and it really embraced uh, popular culture at a time when all of that was exploding. What, what was it like to be there? Because you, you joined, I guess, right at the beginning of Entertainment Weekly? About like a month after the launch. Yeah, about a month after yeah, the launch. Amazing. It was a, a bumpy start. I mean, it was created by a guy named Jeff Jarvis, who basically, you know, his time begot people and people begot Entertainment Weekly. And Jarvis was the one who came up with the idea. He did not last very long. It, it was um, not a really auspicious beginning. And a couple of editors from People were brought in essentially to close the magazine down. And they decided, really? you know what? Yeah, they, they basically, their job was to, I think subscribers had, you know, a certain number of free issues and they were going to burn those off and then close it down. And wow. these editors, including Jim Seymour, who's the, the first real editor of the magazine for any length of time, decided, you know what, this is actually a really good idea. We're going to make this work. And they just took the staff that Jarvis had assembled and sort of hammered them into shape. And lo and behold, it started working. And it was um, it was interesting. I remember the first time I realized it was actually making an impact, I was taking the subway uptown to go to the offices. And I saw not one, but two different people on the subway reading Entertainment Weekly. And it was just it was that's so great surreal. that's the best um, but it was um you know when it reached its its height it was just an incredible place to work not only because you had this assembly of really talented people who were as obsessed with pop culture as i was but you had these resources where you know there was a point where i could put a pin in an atlas and if there was a movie filming there they would send me to go see it i got to see the world 
um, on EW's dime. So it was uh, it was pretty fun, cool. and, and it was great job. Well, where where were some of the cool every... movie sets you, you got to go to? Oh, Take us there. Monte Carlo, uh, Mexico, oh, yeah. uh, Rio de Janeiro, um, wow, Rome, Paris, London, a bunch of times. It was it was a grand tour, uh, and you know you get to meet and interview famous people and then make fun of them in print. It was really just, <laughs> you know, the dream job. That magazine so. was formative for me as just a young movie fan growing up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I still remember I had, I had pulled out this feature that was like the biggest movie twist of all time. And I had pinned it on my bedroom wall and made a point to like, it ruined seven for me. I had not seen seven yet because I was like <laughs> nine years old, but I, I, I kept an eye out for Gwyneth Paltrow in that movie. Um, but, uh, you know, that I was an avid reader and subscriber. And this was before bonus features on DVDs or anything. So it really gave you a great insight. Oh, this look is before DVDs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like, it, it I, really warms my heart to hear that I keep reading on Twitter similar stories of people who are, you know, in Ohio or in Virginia or wherever. And, and you know, talking about how much the magazine meant to them. And it's just sort of like that's kind of why we were doing it. It was just like, you know. Do you, do you happen to know, Ben, how many subscribers EW had at its height? I, I don't, but it was millions. It was definitely right. I mean, it was yeah, five million, something like that, something in that zone. That would not um, surprise me. Yeah. Uh, and there are you a few know, brands it, it, where you could just say the name, and everyone knows exactly what you're talking about. And Entertainment Weekly did that. And what was so cool for me was. You know, Entertainment Weekly had a very specific kind of voice. It, it respected the writers' voices there, but together as a whole, there was a kind of snarky voice that was compulsive about pop culture, but never took Hollywood too seriously. It was it was fun, and to see that sort of develop and grow just organically at the magazine, and watch this magazine find its voice and and find its audience was just in real time. It was just kind of an extraordinary experience. Everybody there knew we were onto something special. And that's a pretty great feeling. So And then the internet seeing happened. It go with, and then the internet <laughs> happened, stabbed the magazine in the back and um, <laughs> you know <clears throat> while it was sleeping. And um, everything I changed. mean do you think I mean, Ben there was, there was do you think there was sorry to interrupt you, do you think there's a way for the for the magazine as a brand to have pivoted differently to not have this outcome this week? It's it's hard to say. I do think that there were editorial decisions that were made along the way that had nothing to do with the internet that really hurt the brand. Um, it, it diluted the voice at, at a certain mm -hmm. point, and there was a move to make it sort of friendlier to Hollywood and to make it almost like a people light kind of thing. And I think that right. hurt a lot. Um, but even if it had maintained this sort of snarky, smart, smart-assy kind of attitude, um, it, it, you know, all magazines are finding, all print is finding the internet a challenging environment. Maybe they could have done it and they turn it into a coffee table more like book or something. Um, there are, I'm sure, endless discussions about how to proceed. None of the ways they tried to do were smart or worked. Um, but you know, the, the essential mission of the magazine when it started in this new universe where there were like 10 cable channels that how could anybody possibly keep up? Um, mm. Although that mission is now, I'd say, just as important as ever. There's, you know, a clearinghouse or, um, 
to let people know what's worth watching, what's not worth watching, where to find stuff, what to right. avoid. All that stuff is more important than ever. Um, but that the magazine had just sort of lost sight of that that vision. I mean, I think it's also there was a point where it was the place to be and you were there for that period of time and you had grown up there in some ways as a writer. But then there was a moment where that stopped being the magnet for the talent. Right. So if you because the Internet came along and, you know, we launched the rap in 2009, it was that was where and then, you know, the, the trades that were publishing used to be publishing, I'm talking about Variety and The Hollywood Reporter, really sort of incremental things about the box office or the this one ankled, that ankled, this inked, scribe inked. They started writing for a broader consumer audience too. And Hollywood Reporter yes. very consciously went after that audience, both in print and online. And I would argue that they did it better at that point, you know, at their- I think you're right. I, better than EW did it. I think you're right. In the, in the mid to late 2000s, uh, the magazine, you know, the way I remember it is, is there was a period before then, if there's a dividing line, there was a period before then was, was like, we can do anything. We haven't tried everything. There's a million mm -hmm. experiments to do. Why not try mm -hmm. that? And what a great place it is to be. And then after that, it was sort of like, remember how great it used to be. Remember how mm -hmm. we used to do stuff like that. Remember, you know, mm -hmm. there was sort of looking back at, at a, a more golden era. Um, I don't know exactly where that dividing line occurred, but it was somewhere in that zone. And you're right. The Hollywood Reporter ate a lot of Entertainment Weekly's lunch at a certain point when, when Entertainment Weekly was starting to sort of fumble. Um, you know, I, I, maybe 32 years is, is a really long run. It is. Maybe, you know, it maybe is. I'm being harsh. And it, the fact that it was able to sustain um, what it was for so long is pretty remarkable for any magazine. Um, really remarkable for any magazine. It's hard to think of another. The New Yorker, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, well, it'll be it'll be interesting to see what ha what happens. I'm sad to hear that all these journalists are losing their jobs. Um, and, uh, but it is nice to see all the tributes, uh, Ben wrote, you wrote a, a really terrific piece about what entertainment weekly meant to the culture. If you have not seen it, I would encourage you to check it out on the wrap, um, and along with the rest of Ben's writing, which is really a treat. But, um, anyway, a lot, a lot of people who appreciate what entertainment weekly meant to, to the culture at its height. So Myself thanks included. for that. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now, uh, switching gears, a segment we call Wax On, Wax Off, where Sharon gives her thoughts on her favorite person or moment of the week. Uh, and with that, I will cede the floor to you. All right. My Wax On this week goes to a bunch of aging rockers who have more of a conscience than a lot of the kids. I'm going to shout out to Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, uh, who, who am I missing? David Crosby, Graham Nash, Stephen Stills. And India.re and a few other podcasters who have uh, told Spotify they don't want to be carrying their music on their platform as long as they have Joe Rogan spewing misinformation about vaccines. I think that's a really um, remarkable show of principle. Um, I'll also point out both Neil Young and Joni Mitchell had uh, gotten polio in a polio wave in Canada. They're both Canadian when they were children and they have a very strong experiences, personal experiences about what vaccines mean for a society. But it, it points out what 
the power of um, public protest can be and if you are willing to back it up with action. Uh, so I think that's very cool. And um, Spotify is still trying to quite figure out how to do damage control there. Uh, the, they keep issuing memos and talking to their staff. I don't think they are close to figuring out how to deal with this problem. My wax off is for the Oscar noms this year. It's kind of disappointing to for this crop of films. And, um, you know, the, the films that did get, we're going to talk about them with Steve Paul, the films that did get nominations, um, Belfast and um, uh, The Power of the Dog, of course. Those are wonderful films. I just feel like overall this year, uh, we're starting to really feel the the damaging effects of COVID and that we need to get back to a time when our artists, our, our, the, the storytellers of our society can really um, stretch and be able to um, express themselves in ways that are beyond projects that are quite narrow. Uh, because I feel like it, overall, it feels like the field of candidates are, are narrow and there are some there is some wonderful work out there but I am really looking forward to seeing the films that are going to come out once we are freed from the strictures of COVID and that's my wax off all right um we'll have Sharon's interview with the cast and directors of the Janes later in the podcast but first uh let's dig into those Oscar nominations so the nominations came out on Tuesday and Jane Campion's western epic The Power of the Dog led the field with 12 nominations including Best Picture other Best Picture nominees leading the field include Denis Villeneuve's science fiction epic Dune with 10 nominations, Kenneth Branagh's Irish drama Belfast about his own childhood, and Steven Spielberg's adaptation of West Side Story with seven nominations each. Joining us to discuss some of the lessons we're learning from these nominations, some of the snubs, some of the surprises, because there are a bunch of them, is the Raps Award editor, Steve Pond. Welcome back to the podcast, Steve. Thanks, Sharon. How are you? We're good. We're good. We're glad to have you. So tell us, what was your takeaway? You wrote an analysis on The Wrap, as you always do on Oscar Noms Morning. What's your take on this year's crop? Um, I, I mean, I think you're you're right in that the specter of COVID is sort of hanging over what was what was available. Um, oh, I thought you were going to beat me know, up for that. Hang on. No. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that, well, you know, I've been interviewing a lot of these people and and pretty much everybody who has a film that's nominated for Oscars, if you ask them what was the biggest challenge, they'll start talking about the COVID restrictions they were under. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, it, it as usual, it feels like a very international list. Um, you know, Oscars, the Oscars have added a lot of overseas voters. And yeah, you know, for most years, I mean, it's, it's like most years, more than half the categories have at least one film that's not in English in them. Um, you know, you you both of the writing categories have foreign language films in them. Um, you know, Penelope Cruz was nominated for a performance in Spanish, and you just go up and down the list. It's a really international. You know, you look at the the shorts and the docs. It's a surprise if there there are American films in there. So isn't um, isn't that kind of overdue though? I mean, the the film oh, yeah. the audience for Hollywood's movies has been global for decades already. Yeah, no, I mean this this is the Oscars sort of belatedly acknowledging that that you know film film is international, and mm -hmm. it's not just that American films are international; it's mm -hmm. that films from from everywhere um, can travel as well. So um, you know, 
that part is good. Um, you know, I mean, it was an odd batch of nominations in certain ways. I, I don't think anybody, including Netflix, expected Power of the Dog to do as well as it did. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I mean, it, I don't know. It's, it's an odd year. And I think, you know, the nominations certainly didn't help the Academy in terms of getting eyes on the Oscar show. And it eventually happens right. in, in seven weeks. I'm I'm loath to use the word snub, but what what was the biggest snub in your opinion, or the biggest? Uh, you use it, Adam. Go. Use it. <laughs> okay, I, I used mean, it. What's the biggest snub? I think you know I'm not I'm not going to be one of the um, you know the people in the Twitterverse complaining about Lady Gaga not getting nominated. No. <laughs> I th I think it was a hero in the international category. Asghar oh. Farhadi has directed two films in the last ten years that have won in that category. And he didn't even make he didn't make the final five. Um, you know that was one of the strongest films in the field. Um, so that. So was what, what do you attribute that to? I mean, would people just didn't see the film? No, because in that category, it, it's you know it's it's not so much people who didn't see the film. I don't know. It's um, you know if you watched all fifteen films, um, there were more people. I think maybe people feel like well. It's not as good as a separation was, or something like it's not, mm. you know, it's not as good as Ferrati can be. But look at this movie from Bhutan, and we'd never know anything about the country before. And it's a charming movie, and it taught us about this country. So let's give that one a shot. Um, okay, let's you know, talk about some more famous snubs, though, because many people okay. don't know Oscar part. Who are yeah, some I mean. Everybody thought Lady Gaga was going to get nominated. She didn't. Kristen Stewart, right. who most people thought was going to get snubbed got in even though she had missed out at BAFTA and at SAG. Um, mm. Katrina Bell from Belfast, everybody thought was a lock for supporting actress. She didn't get in, but Judy Dench, her castmate, did. Right. Um, and that and that was a case probably where mo a lot of people probably thought, well, Katrina's more of a lead. Um, she doesn't belong in supporting. Judy Dench is, is a true supporting actress in that. Um, I don't know. So there was stuff like that. Um, you know, it was it was a surprise, I suppose, that Penelope Cruz got into actress and, you know, instead of Lady Gaga. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think it was a smart choice by the, by the voters. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was not a shock that Spider-Man didn't get nominated for for Best Picture. Sorry, but, um, you know, oh, I don't care. <laughs> I was I was not uh, I thought that movie was fine. I was not uh, one of those beating the drum for a best. Oh, movie. really? Okay. All right. What uh, about Aaron Sorkin? You know, like all his actors were getting uh, recognized for being the Ricardos and where's, Yeah, that where's that was a shock that Aaron Sorkin wasn't nominated for screenplay. Um, you know, and being the Ricardos was a slight shock that it wasn't nominated for picture, but but Aaron Sorkin's screenplays always get nominated. Right. And for Except that, for Jobs, for the, which I thought was one of his best when I was which annoyed one? that he didn't get it. Steve Jobs, that yeah. one didn't get it. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and and for you know, the surprise in that category was the worst person in the world, the Norwegian movie. Yeah, that's is, amazing. Which is a wonderful movie, but nobody expected that that would beat out Aaron Sorkin for uh, for screenplay. I haven't seen it, but I did notice the New York Times did a huge piece on the actress who's the lead in, the, in that. I was like, oh, I better go watch that. Yeah, she's she's great. She should have been nominated for Best Actress. Do you think uh, that everybody got uh, access to these films? Because it, to me, it's a little bit like alphabet soup of where you can find the films and see them. Um, you know, right. very well, few if, in theaters, which platform, when. 
just... and if if you're an academy voter there is a there's a screening room that is available to you and it had i believe 170 movies in it um and that what... doesn't count the international movies or the documentaries because those have their own screening rooms but so see, there were... wouldn't wouldn't it be interesting to ask the academy how many people are actually watching the films even if they're saying, okay, well, they got screeners or they got links, but probably most people right. are watching them in the Academy screening room now, right? Wouldn't you say? Yeah, most most people are watching, most voters are watching in the screening room. Um, mm -hmm. The Academy says it was a record voter turnout. Now they have more voters now than they've ever had before. So that helps. Right, they the should. Yeah. Um, would, you, would they tell you if you asked how many? They wouldn't, they wouldn't tell you how many people voted or they wouldn't tell you how many people watched movies. Um, but you know there were basically all of the major contenders were in the in the Oscar screening room for Academy members to watch if they wanted. Mm -hmm. So um, one would one would hope that they've seen them. I mean, the crazy thing is it's a full month before they can vote for the final. Yeah. You know, and and I think part of that is they want to give people time to see all the nominees. But my feeling is, if you're in the Academy, you should have seen them already. Well, and to that point, do you subscribe to to the opinion that this is all over and Power of the Dog has it in a walk? No, I don't. I mean, I if you if you look at the usual markers, um, Power of the Dog is clearly the front runner. Um, but the last ten years have sort of taught us that the usual markers don't mean as much as they used to. Yeah. Every, every year, something is yeah. is getting is winning Best Picture despite the fact that it doesn't have X, Y, or Z. So, you know, I think Power of the Dog is is a legitimate front runner right now. I also think that the way they count votes in that category, you have to be a consensus movie. And it may be that something like Belfast is more is palatable more to a large group of people than Power of the Dog, which might be a, a little more divisive. Um, well, so, for, for a wider look at the Oscar nominations conversation, uh, including as it relates to diversity in nominations, uh, we're now joined by Dr. Courtney Baker, uh, who's an associate professor of English at the University of California at Riverside, uh, who specializes in African-American literary and visual cultures and has published essays on 1970s black visual culture, Selma, post-Katrina documentaries, and the passing of actor Michael K. Williams. Uh, welcome, Dr. Baker. Welcome. Obviously, there's uh, a lot to discuss. Thanks. There is indeed. I'm really pleased to be here. So did you hear the conversation about the snubs and surprises? <laughs> I did. I, I did. <laughs> All right. So I what's, and what's I, your I, take? Um, I agree with much of what you're saying about how we are in this moment, really seeing uh, the effects of COVID. We're also seeing, of course, the effects of the pre-COVID move to streaming outlets as opposed to just watching films in the theaters. Um, one thing that we're not seeing, and I think that doesn't necessarily get mentioned when the clamor about diversity appears around awards season, is that the films that we're seeing have been in the process of being made and the campaigns have been constructed for two to three years before they're landing before us for the awards. So one thing that we're not seeing necessarily reflected in the offerings is what we can now think of as a kind of racial awareness um, in light of the uprisings of last summer. 
So I mm -hmm. think some of the reactions about the snubs in regard to diversity are taking on that, um, that awareness um, and are then directed at a relatively safe uh, array of films that were created under, you know, these extraordinary conditions of making a film under COVID conditions. Hmm. Um, so are you saying that you think that in another year it, it, it'll be better? You think that there'll be more time for these uh, projects to gestate and kind of take on that more that that awareness that that you think is 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 now with us? I think so, or at least my 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 hope is there. Yeah, and then the right. question then right emerges as to the degree to which the academy is willing to be responsive to those things, right? Because when we're talking about these uh, feature films, the Oscars are nice, the awards are nice, but if they don't impact the bottom line, um, and there's still an idea that uh, taking on or producing works by queer folks, by people of color, um, that that's not going to um, impact the the profit margin, then we're we're it, we're not going to see those films get made that would then land in the pre prestige categories that the Oscar really endorses. Steve, what's your what's your take on that? I mean, I I I think you know I, I think Dr. Baker is 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 right about this. I think that if you look at say the short film categories in this year's Oscars, those are films that for the most part were made more recently. And there are definitely films there that are a reaction to what we've seen around us over the last year or so. Um, you know, one of the, the only American um, live action short is basically, you know, a, a satire, but it's based on minority communities being thrown in prison with no recourse and, mm -hmm. the, you know, for-profit prison that is there to take all your money and, and keep you there. Um, you know, there's a there's a British a British live action short that Riz Ahmed stars in um, called The Long Goodbye that is just you know brutally angry about the treatment of of um, you know immigrants and you know there are a lot of films in the short films category that are about don't turn us into the other um, and one would hope that those kind of voices are are the kind of voices that will have access to more than just you know, the, the shorts categories in the future. Dr. Baker, do you think the voters are seeing the film? I mean, you talked about films from queer filmmakers and filmmakers of color, which seem to kind of light up Sundance or Slamdance or on the festival circuit and people find them and then come Oscars morning, it's it, they're nowhere to be found. Yeah, I think there there's, you know, the popular rhetoric where when we're talking about the snubs and the surprises, that mostly, you know, to kind of respond and agree with what Steve is saying, that are focused around feature length uh, fiction films. So if we look outside of that, we look at the documentaries, we look at the short features, or we look at something other than directors, writers, um, and actors, there's actually a lot more diversity that is occurring behind the scenes. Um, and um, yeah, so I, I think that I think that there's reason to hope. I would also say that um, some of the things that the academy 
awards particularly don't necessarily celebrate, like genre films, like horror. Um, and we re remember, right, the kind of kerfuffle that emerged when uh, Jordan Peele's Get Out was nominated. Right? What, what category is it supposed mm -hmm. to, to fit in? And he right. said it's a comedy, right? That, um, so I, I think some of the places where we're seeing the most diversity are not uh, are not necessarily those films that get recognized as the prestige films. So I would say that the Academy seems to have an, a particular idea about what kind of films it wants to channel into that long campaign season for for awards um, that don't doesn't necessarily correspond. That doesn't really necessarily take a lot of risks in terms of um, content. I, I would just point to Coda as one of the films that I thought was very, um, you know, risk-taking and innovative. And to have Troy Couture uh, nominated for Best Actor, I think, is, is it Best Actor or Best Supporting, Steve? Best Supporting. Supporting. Yeah. yeah. Um, is very cool. I thought he was fantastic in the film. And um, the film, to me, stands on its own merits as a piece of entertainment. And it's just so great that it was, um, you know... Stars Troy and Marley Matlin, and just the whole the whole story behind it is yes. just fantastic. I mean, I, and I was I was bummed that uh, Passing didn't get much love at uh, the Oscars. We we really loved uh, Ruth Negg and Tessa Thompson's uh, performances over here, and I thought the cinematography was like gorgeous, and you know. But that's just me. We can't <laughs> all have our favorites. And the only other one thing I would say, um, Dr. Baker, is that I also felt like what was coming out of Sundance this year also is um, kind of connected to what you're what you're saying. Is we are seeing certainly, you know, on all sides, documentary and in the features, the you know more of um, the 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 kind of themes and and just sort of stories taking on these. Uh, you know, these communities and these issues and, and marginalized people who have not been part of the, the mainstream of storytelling, it feels to me like there has, that is improving, that is shifting. And, and I have been writing that, you know, pretty much for the last few years, but it felt that way this year to me again. I don't know about you guys. It I also feels like in, in, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think that's right. And I think that some of what we're, we're, we're recognizing is, um, that it's a big shift to turn around and that there are rising generations, right? And yeah. different interests. And that some of the, the, the rules, particularly in terms of participation and who gets to vote that the Academy has implemented have really produced significant change in, in how the voting unfolds. Which, which really just shows it, it can be done, right? It yeah. can be done if, you're, if there is an intention and focus it, can be it also feels like we we were kneecapped a little bit, but Black Panther was creating kind of this wave, not only as a, a film from Black artists, but about the African-American experience. And we have Shang-Chi came out, Asian-Americans mm -hmm. about an Asian-American experience. Pixar is about to release Turning Red. Uh, Dome Shi is the director of that. She's a Canadian uh, Chinese animator. It's about a young Asian-American girl. So, you know, not only are we increasing the diversity behind the camera, but it seems like the stories being told in front of the camera are also reflecting that, which I think is is hopeful. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Baker, Steve Pawn. Um, we'll be watching over weeks and weeks, Steve. Until <laughs> <laughs> the Oscars it will be endless. We'll be talking Power of the Dog this week, next week, and the week after that.
<laughs> Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, you guys. Thank you. So Sundance wrapped its 2022 festival just a few days ago. In our last podcast, we brought you my interviews with Emma Thompson and the cast, the cast of Good Luck to You, Leo Grad and Eva Longoria and Oscar De La Hoya of the boxing documentary La Guerra Civil. But there's one more interview from Sundance that I really wanted to highlight and let you guys have a listen to. The Jades is a documentary that's set to air on HBO that focuses on a group of women in Chicago who provided abortions to women in need in the years before uh, 1973's Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision, which of course uh, made it possible for uh, a, a woman to have an abortion anywhere in the country. And of course, that right is uh, now on a knife's edge and stands likely to fall in the coming weeks. I was joined by the directors of the Janes, Emma Pildes and Tia Lesson, and two actual members of the Jane Collective, Diane Stevens and Judith Arcana, women who actually did perform abortions themselves on women who came and asked for help. Here is that conversation. Hi, everybody. It's Sharon Waxman, the editor-in-chief of The Wrap, coming to you from The Wrap's virtual studio at the Sundance Film Festival. At this time, I am so excited to talk to the women behind a documentary that's screening a competition. It's called The Janes. So we have director Emma Pildes and director Tia Lesson with us. And we also have two historical figures who are featured in the film, Judith Arcana and Diane Stevens, two of the women who were involved in the Jane Collective, an underground movement network to help women get safe abortions at a time when abortion was illegal. So welcome to all of you. Thank you so much, Sharon. So happy to be here. Yeah, and thank you for this important film. So obviously the question of a woman's right to choose is dominating uh, the headlines and it's dominating the festival this year because uh, it seems that we are on the brink of losing the right to choose in all around the United States as Roe v. Wade seems poised to fall. Um, by the hair of a Supreme Court decision that maybe that's probably imminent. When uh, Emma and Tia, did you embark on this film and did you have any uh, awareness that it, would, it might come out, this film's gonna come out as the right to choose goes away? Now speaking, Emma Pildes. <laughs> I mean, as you know, Tia's, as Tia's been saying all day today, you know, I mean, this has been a, a, a slow chipping away since 1973, since Roe passed, there's been a slow chipping away. So, you know, it, you know, I, I think that's, that's, if you're paying attention, um, that's not new news, but it has gone into hyperspeed since 2018. Um, and that is when we started to develop and, and work on this film. And there has been milestones along the way um, that may definitely lit a fire under us um, to get this film out. Um, you know, whether it be the loss of, of Justice Ginsburg, even Kennedy, who was a conservative, but was keeping the court, you know, somewhat balanced um, his resignation. So, you know, there have been things all along the way that have been, have been signs um, and, you know, I, but I don't- well, Let's just say why this story? You could have chosen to talk about abortion a lot of different ways. Um, 
Tia, why, why this story in particular? I mean, it's a great story. It's I mean, got, it is a great it's story. Got, it's totally. got incredible drama. It's got good guys. It's got bad guys. It's got, you know, the it's set against the turmoil of the late 60s, early 70s in Chicago, um, which was ground zero, really the epicenter for resistance and defiance at that time. Um, and um, and these women were incredibly you know, courageous and not just doing what they did, but then sitting for our cameras and speaking about it. You know, they broke the law. And these were, you know, these were ordinary women turned out laws. Like what better story is that? You know, they were breaking the law, potentially, you know, with life sentences hanging over their heads. Um, but they- It's crazy. That's totally crazy. When, not to jump ahead, but like the women were arrested when they finally raided the clinic, you're facing a life sentence? Um, Judith and Diane, welcome. And thank you for being here. And thank you for participating in the film to fill in a really important part of American history. Um, that seems insane to me. Was that normal to you back then when you were breaking the law? Now speaking, Diane Stevens. Well, I'm a person that believes in logical consequences. I knew I was doing something illegal all along, and I knew there was the possibility of going to jail. Um, when we were, because, and I felt so strongly about it. It was what I had to do. I just had to because of the circumstances. When we were actually arrested, I felt that I was in a much better position than some of the other women that were arrested in that I didn't have children, I didn't have a family that would be devastated. How old um, were you at the time? Um, I think I was 22. I was 22. 22. So you're yeah. like a, basically a kid. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess. I certainly, if you looked at my um, mugshot, you cert I certainly looked like a kid. Yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, was, I was willing to face it. You know, I knew I might have to face it. Were you one Not, of the I'm women? Glad that I didn't have to. Were you one of the women uh, performing abortions? Well, we all performed, really. We all performed part. So, okay, Judith, how about you? How did, how did it feel to you at the time, knowing what you were, the risk you were running? I actually almost never thought about the risk. Um, I know that sounds simple-minded, but it isn't that we were simple-minded or that I particularly was simple-minded. It's that that just wasn't what was important, you know? Right. Um, one of the things I think about a lot, um, when my website was being put together about a decade ago, um, I said right on my Jane page, um, we have to think about the difference between law and justice. And law is somebody's idea, and if that somebody has the power to make it be the rule, that everybody has to follow, then it's a thing. But that's got nothing to do with the way people should behave and the things people should do. And so it just really wasn't on my mind. And of course, like Diane, I mean, when we were arrested, it was pretty scary. You know, uh, we knew that we were endangered. But again, really, that was not the most important thing. I know that sounds like sky blue dreaminess, but actually, a lot of us thought that way. 
just wasn't. Or did uh, is it because this went on? I guess from 1968 until 1973. Is that right? And from if I remember correctly, you, you performed 11,000 procedures for women. That's an estimate. Could be total. Oh, okay. I mean, even so. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. That's a yeah. lot. Now speaking, Tia Lesson. And and uh, and keep in mind, Sharon. It, the, the, the performing the procedure itself was a crime, but so was just advertising um, the procedure, advertising, putting up signs that say, call, you know, pregnant need help, call Jane. That was a crime. Being an accomplice, you know, to holding a woman's hand during the procedure, driving her to the procedure, those were crimes. So the entire, you know, the entire endeavor was criminalized. Um, from soup to nuts. The women themselves, you know, who are getting the procedures in some states, they were criminalized. I Not think in Illinois at that time, but in many states and and they were oftentimes strong armed by the by the law enforcement agencies to to give up the abortion providers to, to stay out of jail. Yeah, it's almost um, there's something almost out of body being a woman in America and feeling like we are stepping into this new space. I, I cannot I cannot even put it on that persona of what it would be what it will be like to be live in a country that where the state tells you is taking away a right that you've had for 50 years. I mean just put it that way. It's like all of a sudden you may not drive your car on Tuesdays and Thursdays or some, something like completely random. Like why, why? Now speaking, Emma Pildes. I think that's a, you know, that's a lot of the power of this film, right? I mean, we, you yeah. don't have to imagine what it was like. This is what it was like, you know? I mean, we worked right. as hard as we could to make it as visceral as possible to understand, you know, what went into the fear, you know, the isolation, all of the things that it felt like. And that, you know, that Diane at 22 was taking this into her own hands as her responsibility. I mean, that's part of what is screwy about what goes on, you know, when, when women, all kinds of women and people are backed into this, this corner. So that's what I hope is that is that you know you don't have to to imagine it or we hope Tia and I but th that you can see it on the screen and really understand the stakes that we're talking yeah. about. Well, by the way a uh, fun fact that I learned in this movie which is all part of this completely messed up uh, sort of logical construct which is um, contraception was developed as a uh, godsend for you know, industrialized society, right? And it was banned they, for women who weren't married. I had no idea that before I heard this, that, that this like, I told this to my son today. He's like, that doesn't make any sense. That's completely upside down. He said, and then what about the men? Don't they wanna like be able to have sex with women? Why would they pass that law? I'm like, well, the people passing the laws. It's just, it's all about control, right? Like you, you have to control women because God forbid, women should have yeah be allowed to run free. That would just be <laughs> crazy. I mean, it's so crazy to me. Now speaking, Tia Lesson. 
some people thought you should be punished for having sex and this was the punishment you had Absolutely. to carry, you know, be forced to carry a big, a baby to term. Now speaking, Judith Arcana. And no consideration whatsoever for the life of the child. If the child is considered a punishment, what does that mean for the life of that little tiny person if its mother has made it and carried it because somebody thinks that's appropriate punishment for her personal judgments, decisions, and mores? What about the life of that little person to be created in a world where that's the reason you exist? I think a lot about what that means. Yeah. Yeah. And we, I, I was pointing out to my son today, talking about this, how they've correlated the decline of, of crime rates with um, the right to choose in, in our society. And anyway, so, so, so many things. Um, Judith and Diana, I mean, you are so much a part of history and, and to be able to, to testify as witnesses to what, what it was like when you couldn't have an abortion. Um, talk about how that marked you, sort of uh, the process of joining the Jane Collective and meeting women who were, uh, it seems, desperate to um, be able to get an abortion. What, what was that like at the time? Now speaking, Diane Stevens. I had been one of those women desperate to have an abortion. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was fortunate that I was able to get an abortion by saying that I was crazy and having a legal abortion. So I, you know, I had a lot of feeling for the women because I was one of them. And I learned a lot from the women, you know, that would come to my house, they would be open with me, I would be open with them. Um, we all learned a lot from each other. It was very intense. I don't know how to describe it other than that, very intense and moving and it affected my, my whole life, the way my life has gone on, those women and the women I worked with. How so? How so? Well, some of those women are, the women who I worked with are my best friends to this day. Um, I went on to have a career in uh, healthcare. And now, um, uh, as I mentioned uh, to somebody else, that um, the reason I even did this film was because I'm now I'm in North Carolina and I found out how the women were being harassed so badly when they attempt to obtain a, re a legal abortion. Mm -hmm. There's a man that drags a ladder and hangs over the fence of the clinic and harass yells at the women. I mean, I couldn't believe it. Um, he yells at them, he tells them they're entering the gates of hell. This will, you know, will be a, there will be no redemption. Um, it's horrible. Those anti-abortion people are, are mean zealots. And so I started participating in a group that defends the clinics, that escorts the women. And um, so it continues even with Roe, it continues. There's so many barriers um, yeah. even with well, not to mention they've murdered a whole lot of doctors who performed right. abortions over the years. Yeah, one of the fellows that comes to the clinic where I go uh, has been arrested for stalking doctors. He's um, one of those uh, risk operation rescue people. They're horrible. Judith, what, give us a little taste of what, what it was like um, at the time, the feeling of 
encountering women who needed what you were providing? Well, it was, of course, extremely complex. Um, some of them were very, very young. I remember the youngest person I worked with was 11, who came with her mother. Oh my um, and then women who were um, in menopause, let's say late 40s, early to mid 50s, who got pregnant because, you know, menopause messes up your cycles and it's very easy to make an error. So all that range of people from literally children, like that 11 year old who kind of, I can still see in my mind's eye to the older people. Um, well, as Diane just said, I learned a lot from them. I learned, it was a great gift actually to us, those of us who worked in the service, the abortion service, um, to be able to relate seriously about something so important with so many people who we otherwise would never have met, you know, unless we happened to sit next to one of them on a bus one day, you know? I mean, these are people who would not have been in our lives for a variety, for the usual variety of reasons. And so it was a gift and it was a gift of education, a gift of learning. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm still grateful for it. Uh -huh no question about it. And I am one who thinks a lot about the fact that even though um, abortion has been quote unquote legal in this country because of the Roe decision in January of 73, um, the fact of the matter is, as Diane mentioned, and I think maybe Tia and, and Emma as well, um, many, many parts of this country are places where it is extremely difficult, if not impossible, for people who need abortions to get them. Because there isn't this, oh, it's okay because of Roe. There are no clinics or the clinics are all under a, attack, like what Diane was describing where she is now. Um, it's not okay now. The Roe thing is, it's real, of course, but that's not all there is to think about. There are great, great regions, huge regions of this nation where people are still dealing the way some of the people who came to us are dealing mm. um, with tremendous difficulty, fear, danger. The pro-life people who, as someone just said, kill people. <laughs> yeah. So everything from that to harassment, the stuff that Diane described at the clinic, um, that's all real right now, no matter what this particular unfortunate Supreme Court group does. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for uh, it, uh, this film. It certainly also raises the question to me of what ideas you're planting for, for people <laughs> who are gonna have to deal with the lack of um, legal protection such as it is today today and tomorrow going forward, uh, because women will continue to seek out abortions, they will continue to need abortions. And that, that basic fact seems to escape many of the uh, people who are making um, moral judgments and legal decisions that impact um, half of the country, pretty much. So um, thank you for a fascinating film. Thank you for being here today in our studio. And um, let's all hope that we find a path forward 
at this uh, really critical time in our history. Now speaking, Tia Lesson. And, and Sharon, today is the 49th anniversary of the decision in Roe v. Wade. So wow. it may well be, you know, the last time that we can celebrate that decision. Um, wow. And wow. Thank you for pointing that out. 49 years, it might not make it to 50, probably won't make it to 50, almost certainly. Well, there's got, there are other, there are other uh, tools that we're going to have to use. Yes. Because women, we, right. we are, because women are not going to just sit back and say, well, okay. I don't well, think that's going to happen. They didn't then, and they're not going to now. And you can and always. Never have. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Exactly, Emma. Never have. There have been abortions for thousands of years. They're not going to go away. And that is it for the latest episode of The Wrap-Up. Thank you to all of our listeners. And remember to please follow or subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us and let us know what you think of the pod. See you next time.